it's easy to take religious things and get all tangled up and, and be sort of in the performance mode for those around us. So why don't we pray and just be sure to pray loud enough that everybody can hear you. Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I do praise you that you are a God who is patient with us. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, oh, let Israel say, had it not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, they would have swallowed us alive. Blessed is the Lord who has not given us to be torn by their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowler. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Father, I thank you that through Jesus Christ we have all escaped. We're free. We went from being captives now to being your sons. We were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your dear son. And Father, um, I just, it would be so amazing if you, Lord Jesus, would walk in the side door and come up on the podium and sit up on this chair and teach. And yet, in some measure, that's what we're asking you to do, Father. I'm asking you to allow me to put aside things that are my agenda and absorb your agenda, Lord, and your your thoughts. Help me to think your thoughts. Help me to take thoughts captive. Help us all to do that, Lord, as we sit here. We don't need to hear from people, Lord. We need to hear from you. And I thank you as I've been prayed for the gifts that you've given each one of us. And I pray that even as we interact on the question and answer time or the other things that we do, that, Lord, there would there would be a mutual edification for each one of us. Father, we just thank you that um, you never yelled at your disciples and said, well, you should know that already. And as we come, we ask that you'd Help us especially resist the condemnation of the enemy that makes absorbing your grace so difficult. Father, we're going to talk about a thing that's invisible, about our conscience, and we just ask that you would you would explain it to us, Lord, would you? Would you make it clear in our spirits? Father, and as we said yesterday, we refuse the, the ploy of the enemy as we see the excesses and the confusion of those who may say that the Holy Spirit is leading them. We know you're not an author of confusion, but Father, we we don't want to be afraid of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to fall into deception, but we don't want to nullify his ministry so that we have to try to figure out everything. We ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit again this morning. Lord, and show us anything that would block his ministry. Lord, it says that he is the one that, like with the disciples, took your word and made sense of it to them. He, he explained it. He opened it up to them. So we ask you to do that now by the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, I'm I'm a newbie, say, in the, in the Christian walk, and... I've just been saved, and somebody starts talking to me about conscience. And, you know, there may be things in my life, I've been maybe doing this or that, and I haven't seen anything wrong with it. In my worldview as a non-Christian, it seemed fine. But I noticed that at church they're preaching against some of the things I'm doing. 
And when I talk with the pastor's wife and mention a few things, I see the look on her face, and I think, oh, I guess she doesn't think that's such a good idea, what I'm doing or what I just said. So I'm thinking about this thing about conscience. So I come to you and I say, can you explain to me about our conscience? What is it? And does everybody have one? And what are we supposed to listen to it or what? What would you say to me? What if I went so far as to say, well, see, I'm, you know, I'm living with this guy, but, I, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I think God says it's okay, I mean, I guess, and never gave it a thought before, but, you know, and, and I feel good about it. I, I think, you know, so I think if it were wrong, I, my conscience would kind of be bothering me, wouldn't it? And I'm not going away, that's the problem. I sit there in your office looking at you. <laughs> And I'm not easily distracted either. <laughs> what would you tell me? And then I might even confuse you more and say, well, or challenge you more. Well, like, is it the conscience that tells us we need to confess our sins? Or if our conscience is telling us it's okay, is that pretty clear? Then we can go ahead with it. No, okay. I would probably, I would probably, isn't it neat? New Christian, I love working in things like prison ministries, stuff like that, because there's an honesty. They don't know Christianese yet. They don't know the, they don't know how to say things in well-packaged plans that may not really answer the question. But, for example, if you say to someone, we just, you just need to trust God. Well, for a, a newbie, a new Christian, well, what, what's that? How do I do that? Go ahead. So I might say, well, why do you say no? Oh, wait a minute. Why don't you wait for the microphone? We're keeping somebody busy here with our interactive stuff. Over a period of time, our conscience can become numbed. Oh, because it, does it like get kind of old, and as it gets older, it numbs up? Or? Uh, it gets... Uh, well, you know how the heart can be hardened? Oh, okay. And the conscience. Uh, well, yeah, I, can't, I, I, I remember the pastor saying that last Sunday, but what, what hardens it up or what wrecks the thing? Um, refusing the guidance God brings into our life. Knowing, yep. knowing the truth and not uh, yielding to the truth. Well, I thought that our conscience was supposed to be our guide. Like they say, let your conscience be your guide. <laughs> is that a scripture verse? I'm not sure, but no. I think it's in there. <laughs> like, uh, uh. Isn't our conscience connected to Oh, well, now wait a minute. I'm the newbie. Soul. I'm supposed to be asking you questions. <laughs> well, I would have to say. Yeah, good. Okay, good. <laughs> that, um, you know, a part of your conscience is wrapped in, up in your will and, and emotion. Well, do you have a conscience? Uh-huh. Can you tell me of time this past week when you've noticed that your conscience is active? Uh-huh. Are you aware of your conscience? Like, should I be? Okay, I'm aware of my conscience. Yeah. And I, yeah. Well, well, now, give me an example here from your life. Oh, gosh, it's so fresh. <laughs> okay, I'm going to really bear my, my well, thought. Well, really good. But, 
Wow, what a concept, honesty. <laughs> Anti-facade. Okay, good. Yes. Well, gosh, I can't remember what I'm doing. As a laundry but, sister. Yes, okay. Well, um, she's laughing at me because she knows I just got back from talking to Dr. Buda. Oh, okay. But, um, uh, okay, when I was very young, mm -hmm. I um, had a really heavy spirit, didn't know what it was connected to, and in the midst of praying to God to reveal what it was, I received a prayer language. Mm -hmm. Well, it's never been a real intricate part of my salvation or my walk, but it's existed. Yeah. And, um, and and when I came here then, there's, very, there's a lot of talk about testing the spirit and, yeah. and that sort of thing. So last night I thought, I'm going to do that because it's certainly nothing I'm attached to. So, so I did that, got confusion, and then woke up this morning believing that God brought clarity to what happened the night before and that I really hadn't found the spirit, uh, the satanic spirit. Yeah. And um, so I just read through both journal entries because I decided to write. Yeah. when I did all this. And last night, my pen ran out of ink. All my pens ran out of ink. <laughs> Today, they did not. And um, and so I, it, it was just very comforting to talk to uh, Dr. Beck and, mm -hmm. and um, get, get clarity. some clarity from yeah. him. And, um, our, and, and I believe, you know, if I had left here and not sought for God's direction, that that would have been the stronghold more than the prayer language itself. Mm -hmm. Like someone said last night, you kind of, in a sense, there's this unconscious fear of what we might find out or what God's answer might be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, great. What a perfect example of uh, the Lord bringing conviction and and just having us look at something, question something that we didn't in fact this newbie Christian, she's things in her life that she's just learning. Well, have you checked that out? Well, do I need to? Great. Does our conscience ever lie to us? Well, I won't go so far as to say, can you give me an example in your conscience like you? I mean we need a we have to have at least a mini facade going here, right? No, I'm just teasing. Um what I'd like to do is to look at this area of our conscience and think it through. And I think what we've just experienced really makes a point that there's a lot of times that we go to the Word or we, we listen to truth and we don't really mix it with faith like it, I was saying yesterday in that we don't really dig into it and seek to understand it. Uh, there's that verse that always pesters me that says, I'm supposed to be a workman worthy of my hire, but I'm supposed to be able to go to the Word and and use it, use it like a tool. Like chemistry, I never tackled like um, trigonometry or all of that stuff. If you're that kind of a mind, um, that's great. My mind doesn't work like that, so I never tackled something that difficult. But like in chemistry, when I was studying for a chemistry test, boy, I would study, I mean really study, 
and I would try to absorb it, I'd try to memorize it, I'd try to learn, I'd try to internalize it. If there were questions, I'd, I'd search through that, I'd look in, in the back and try to find, if I came on a word I didn't know, I would really follow that up. And I realized that over the years, I've kind of slipped I don't want to make you jealous, but this is a special delivery from Starbucks. No. <laughs> I told him I need to clear my throat, which I do need something hot help. But don't be jealous. Um, but I realized that I had learned over the years to devotionalize the word, not study the word. Because I saw such a drastic difference in how I studied for biology. To really absorb it. Well, what was the motivation? Well, there was going to be a test at the end in a grade, and that's not the case in the word. But I thought, wow. I used to make like blocks of time, like two hours when I, besides my regular time meeting, I would just study, just dig in. And I thought, boy, I can see how if I'm supposed to be able to take the word, not only for myself, but when people come and I disciple them, and they ask me questions like that. Like they might ask me, well, if the cross of Christ is so important, you keep talking about the centrality of the cross, that everything that we've inherited goes back to what happened there. Um, would you like maybe write down five passages of scripture that I could go home and study that relate to the centrality of the cross? Well, wait a minute, I got a book here. Let me see, which notebook is that in? <laughs> You know, it's really good, like in prison ministries or with new Christians. If you don't have new Christians in your life, you might want to hunt up one because they challenge you in a way that makes you really think through what do I believe and what is the truth about this and how can I take them to Scripture. So that's just kind of a beginning step for our study. If you want to start the next slide, number two, from page K1, Understanding Our Conscience. We're going to look at these verses, and what I'd like us to do is is a skill that we teach um, people who are rebuilding their lives. Um, our ministry really focuses, and this isn't the only way to disciple people, but we ask the Lord first, what is discipleship? And a lot of times when I ask pastors that, or women's ministry heads that, there's not a, a clarity within the church of what is discipleship. I don't think there's one answer, but I think it needs to be clarified. For us, the Lord has said, discipleship is putting their hand in his hand. That puts me on the outside of that process. I'm not in between them. In other words, connecting them with him is the way he defined discipleship for us. Well, then I said, well, Lord, in hurting people's lives, people who are working to get past their past, which in some measure is all of us, but people who are rebuilding their lives, where are the lowest points in the wall? Remember when Nehemiah rebuilt the wall? The city had been burned, so naturally the gates were gone because they were wood, but they had metal on them, iron, I believe, and the iron was all twisted. That was still there, but of course people coming up. But it said some of the places the wall was knee-high, and some of it it was almost completely gone. Well, that's where Nehemiah sends the people first. This is a place where it's completely gone. Because that's the most vulnerable place. So I tried to ask the Lord, where are the vulnerable places in the lives of the people that you've called me to disciple? And he brought us three focuses, or foci, I don't know what that is. 
hippopotamus, hippopotami. Doesn't sound right. Anyway, uh, focuses um, that we head for. The first one is helping to clear the way to God the Father. Because they're so messed up about who God is. This isn't in your notes. The second one is teaching them skills to access scripture for themselves. Teaching them skills to access scripture for themselves. Because I found I can get away with it and still sound like a good discipler if a person's been in the church a long time or they're having trouble in one area or something. Or if I say, well, you need to just go to the Word and, and find, you know, like if say that they're wrestling with anxiety. What does the Word say about anxiety? Well, I could say to them, well, you know, just maybe go to the, go to the Word and look up anxiety or something. But for people that have a lot of mind noise or confusion, that are deeply troubled, I can't just tell them to go to the Word, or well, you might want to start with the Gospels. Now, those are good suggestions, but depending on where the person is, if they've got demonic interference in their life, if they've got emotional woundedness that has just uh, made it so that they rely on their emotions to find truth rather than their spirit to find truth. I can't just tell them that. So under that point of giving them skills to access scripture for themselves, there are five specific skills that we teach them. And, um, well, I might as well say them, but this is, I mentioned that we're having a How to Be a Barnabas course in Dallas this Friday night and Saturday. If you want to know about it, you can now see the Makayla and I, and we can put you in touch with the lady who's in charge of it. So far, I think there's about 40 people coming, but I think they still have room in there, hopefully. As now since I've announced it. But we're going to cover this stuff in detail because it's more specifically how to disciple. But anyway, the five skills that we teach is uh, learning to see God's face in the Word. Learning to see God's character first before there's any application. And secondly, using the Word as a sword of the Spirit against specific strongholds. Using the Word as a sword of the Spirit against specific strongholds. Another skill is using the weapon of praise. If I said to you, okay, the Psalms are off limits. You're only in the Old Testament. Give me ten passages of praise and exaltation of God. Well, let's see, was there Miriam, the the song when they crossed the Red Sea? Yeah, that'd be one. Maybe... You know, Solomon's exaltation of God at the building of the temple. And, I mean, we need to be able to, to, to have memorized weapons of praise. Um, and then, uh, let's see, Makayla, you have to remind me of two. Uh, that's not one of the, oh, yeah, turning scripture into affirmations of choice. Turning scripture into affirmation of choice. And the reason I'm getting all this is I want us to do that with these verses, but turning scripture into affirmations of choice. And then, oh my goodness, don't you hate it when they give you a list and they leave off one? Um, what is the fifth one? You can see it's a chart called SOS, Sword of the Spirit. Uh, affirmation choice, we're going to praise. Learning vision against specific strongholds, seeing the face of God. 
I'll get back to you on that one. But in other words, what I'm trying to illustrate here is the being very specific in how we teach people to engage in the Word. So we help them clear the way to God the Father, give them skills to access Scripture for themselves. And the third focus in our discipleship that the Lord's given us is teaching them how to be spiritually aggressive. And I won't go into them, but there's about ten points that the Lord has given us. So that then when we use curriculum or, or Bible studies or get them into the Word, those are the low places in the wall that we need to head for first. Um, and for us, that's been really helpful. The more specific we can be based on from prayer, discerning for these people the Lord's brought to me to minister to, Lord, where do you want, where do you want me to start? Where do I hand them the trowel? You know, where do I have the bricks delivered? Um, but I'd like to use that skill of taking scripture and turning it into choice with these verses. Um, Romans 9, 1 and 2 said, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. What I'd like us to do is to pick out from that, there's not just one, several statements, and let's write one of the statements or all of them, whatever we come up with, next to those verses, by Engaging this verse and mixing it with faith, in other words, saying, yes, I choose to believe that that's true. For example, from this verse, talking about the conscience, I might come away with, as it says up here, our conscience affirms the truth. I might say, um, I choose to have my conscience reflect the witness of the Holy Spirit. Because, see, that's part of that verse, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. In other words, and it's a hard skill to do if you're not used, used to approaching it that way, but I think it's helpful when you're ministering to people. Because we can take that verse and summarize it, look at it, tear it apart, think through what it may be saying, or applying it to ourselves. But a lot of people who have obstacles in their life to doing that, they might just get a tiny bit from this word. And if we can help them say, okay, take this verse, show me something that impacts you. I choose to believe that. Let's use that phrase. What would you say from this verse? It can be any part of it. It's kind of hard to do, isn't it, if you're not really focused that way before. Mm-hmm. God is the source of all truth. I choose to believe that God is the source of all truth. It says in the Word, my choosing doesn't make it true, but it engages me in a way, again, where my will is activated. A lot of the people that we minister to, their will has been crushed by abuse, especially when they were little. They learned that my choices don't matter, nothing changes anyway, so why fight? So there's this passivity in their will that when they read scripture, it's like watching a movie go by. I mentioned that yesterday, yesterday about my, my Finnish background, and I was in um, a, a Finnish church, which was uh, actually a cult, C-U-L-T, not a cult. It was a spiritism church as a child, and 
So they weren't really speaking truth there. But what you were supposed to do, and I think, well, maybe we should do this in our churches where truth is really spoken. As you came out of the church and shook the hand of the pastor, you were supposed to say, which means truly the word of the Lord has been spoken here. And what we were affirming, in that case wrongly, but we were saying, God has given us a message here. Now we need, we affirm that that's from him. We need to know what we're going to do with this. I've been in some churches that do preach the truth that they have three minutes of silence at the very end where the people pray, Lord, what is it that you want me to, what is it that you want to take away from what you've said here? Is there anything you want me to repent of? Instead of, you know, the pastor speaks, he's on the movie every week, you know. I also knew one other pastor, he preached the same sermon for two months. And he was telling, kind of jokingly telling the people, well, when we all absorb this message, then we'll go on to something else. <laughs> Anybody else, what would you pull from this verse as affirming? I choose to believe that it's true that, huh? Mm-hmm. Does anybody know the context here? Do you remember? Why why is Paul sorrowing? For the Jews who weren't accepted. In other words, he was mirroring the grief of the Holy Spirit, the grief of God himself, and the sorrow. That's why it's all right, because his conscience had led him into a place where he could he could touch the heart of God in a way that he could weep over the things that God weeps over. Because that's that same thing like the agape or the forgiveness or grace, all those gifts we get. Instead of trying to find them in ourselves, we, we, we link up with his sorrow and his grief and allow his love to flow through us and his forgiveness. It's a whole different thing, you know. I realized for years I was trying to live the supernatural Christian life, which it is, with natural means. Because I was trying to be able to do these things. And finally I said, Lord, I can't do these things. This is a supernatural life. Would you do these things for me? But it made a whole big difference. Well, let's look at the next one then. The next verse is Romans um, 2.15. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Our conscience fluctuates. Now, part of this is it accuses them when they're wrong and defends them when they're right, but there's other verses that lead, that affirm this, that it accuses or defends us. That's what somebody was saying. Our conscience might not be all the time accurate. What? Isn't it a God-given thing? Yeah. But it has three enemies, the world, the flesh, and Satan. What if we have a huge distortion 
that there is a sin that you can commit that is just so wicked that you can't ever be totally forgiven. So the enemy, the accuser brethren, stirs up our conscience and pesters us, saying, well, you, you know, you, you can never be free of that. You, you should carry this shame for this because it's just too much. I mean, you can't find forgiveness for that. And it's pestering us, it's pestering us. I believe Satan has access to our conscience. Um, I don't know that I can prove it, but I see that our spirit is the impenetrable place where Satan can't enter our spirit. When we become Christians, it says we become one spirit with him. But our soul and our body and our mind, and I believe our conscience is part of our soul, and our will, he can affect and mess around in. Um, if you don't agree with that, don't throw away everything else I'm going to say just because you don't agree. Because straighten me out later if you would, because I'm not, I, I don't know that I can prove that from the word, but at least that's what I see it intimated in the word. So, all right, let's take this first. How would we, the Romans 2.15, turn it into an affirmation of choice? Or maybe just make a statement of truth out of it. We've come up with our conscience fluctuates, but wow! Say that again. That's good. But wait a minute now. See, we're not Galatians. So we're not bewitched. Who has bewitched you, having begun? You know, remember that whole passage? See, so we're Christians, so we're we're not tempted to be um, under the law, are we? We're not like legalists or anything. Right? I just realized, oh boy, within the past year, the reason that legalism just is always there as an enticement and it's a performance thing, you know, okay, go to God, say, which, okay, I'll do those ten things, so then I'll be okay, right, just, okay, good, the performance thing, it's, it's so strong because my flesh loves it, because then my flesh gets to be the God in charge of deciding whether I'm righteous or not, if I measure up, quote, unquote, I don't know about you, but I'm always in danger, I think Paul would have written to me, Elaine, who has bewitched you, having begun in the spirit, have you know, being perfected in the flesh. So thanks for bringing that to our attention. How about 1 Samuel 24, 5? Now it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. Our conscience convicts and stirs within us. Have you ever tried to quiet your conscience, the conviction of the Holy Spirit through our conscience? It's kind of like, yeah, Lord, I'm listening. Whatever you want to tell me, just go ahead because I'll listen. I find myself doing that sometimes. What, can you make a statement of truth, another statement of truth about the conscience from this verse or a statement of choice like she was saying? Therefore, second one, 
choose to actively respond when my conscience bears witness. Wonderful. And here, probably haven't heard your testimony to that. Yeah. And that was my life. Wonderful. Now, for some of us, say the first one, read that first one that you put down again. I choose to invite the Holy Spirit to bear witness on my I know some of us here get wiggles when we even hear that sentence. Because we've heard, you know, inviting. There's a song that sometimes I heard sung like, Spirit fall on us or something. I go, not on me. I'm holding up my spiritual umbrella. Because I believe if I'm a believer, he's already in there. But he's inviting him to work. He's freeing him to work. He's ungrieving him. I really learned a lot about how I was so afraid of the Holy Spirit when I said to the to the Holy Spirit, which first of all was a problem for me, because I said, wait a minute, shouldn't I just be talking to God the Father? Then I said, well, wait a minute, sometimes I say, Lord Jesus, I act, so that's okay. How come I can pray to God the Father and Jesus Christ, but don't pray to the Holy Spirit. Um, but as I said that, it took me a while to realize how I had grieved him. I, so I said, Holy Spirit, how have I grieved you? Oh my goodness, that was one of those things where it was almost like from my spirit he ministered to me. It was almost as though, I'm glad you asked, you know, because there were about 15 ways I had grieved you. Just in little ways. The reason the whole started this whole thing was that I have this thing. I will not, you know, when at Christmas where people put Xmas, well, I just refuse to do that. So I never abbreviate Christ's name in my notes. I always put Christ when I'm when writing anything about Christmas. But I noticed I would put H.S. for the Holy Spirit. Well, why was that? You know, I begin to see these little things in my life. Now, obviously, growing up in the occult, I was very aware of other spirits, deceiving spirits. Spirits were sent to me by my parents, by my grandparents. There were demonic forces within that needed to be evicted. So I was very aware that there were spirits around. But I realized I had become suspicious, not cautious. I was suspicious of everything. So anytime somebody would say something like what he said, invite the Holy Spirit, whoa, 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 back off. You know, let's not get into that, God, all that fracas over there. And the Lord showed me that that was a grieving to the Holy Spirit. I need to be cautious. I need to test the spirits. I need, I need to, to not be looking for some voice inside to guide me. I used to have those and praise the Lord. I was delivered. Somebody asked me if I wanted to go to this church where they just visit that they had what I considered just flagrant abuses uh, of scripture in terms of spiritual gifts and using untested gifts and just having chaos and what I would view as chaos going on. Well, and and the Lord gave me a quick thought. I, uh, the person knew my background and they were likewise a little cautious I would have been a lot cautious about engaging in this service, but I said, well, no, thank you. I'd rather not be repossessed. <laughs> Our next verse, Acts 23, and Paul, looking intensely at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God 
up to this day. Our point is having a good conscience doesn't mean we never sin. Paul wasn't saying, well, since I became a Christian, I'm instant sanctification, like instant oatmeal. You know, I was able to no longer sin. How could you take this verse and engage it, mix it with faith, engage your your will, choose truth out of this? What what would you say? Yeah, you know, when you hear things like that, your spirit just kind of jumps up like, yes, yes, you know. Anybody else? Say that one again, that's great. It's powerful stuff. Because it's saying, you know what? I'm, I'm going to hang on to this truth, just like, you know, we, out in Colorado, we have Rocky Mountain Park, and they have ospreys there. They're birds that are a little bit bigger than eagles, and they do a lot of fishing, and you can watch them come down, swoop down over the water, and they will, they have these talons that are just huge, and they will grab onto this fish. I mean, it can be this cutthroat trout, and it's flopping around, and they just take right off with it, and they got their, they got their talons embedded in that thing. And I decided that's what I need to do with the truth. And that was one of the things that the Lord used to bring me from the confusion and chaos spiritually and emotionally that I was in to, uh, to as I tell most of my friends, well, I'm mostly normal now. What is it? Patsy Claremont says normal is only a setting on your dryer. <laughs> Something like that. But whatever normal is. But by engaging these verses, we grip them and say, you know what? This is where I'm headed. I'm headed here. And I'm setting this down as sort of a stake in the ground. This is how I'm living. Okay. The importance of a clear conscience, back on K, K1. A clear conscience is a prerequisite for ministry. A clear conscience is a prerequisite for ministry. Now I know that there are areas in our life, but those of us sitting here, we don't have a clear conscience. Do you remember that little book that used to come out years ago, My Heart, Christ's Home? I wish they'd published that again. It was an allegory, sort of like Pilgrim's Progress, and it was like equating a person's life with their home. They invited Christ into their home, and he sat in the front room, and, and they invited him into the library and into every area of the house. But when he went by this one locked closet, he smelled a stench, and he said, well, what can I look in? Oh, no, no, let's, let's go to the library again, you know? And the willingness to allow Christ to look in all the closets in our life is what comes out of that. And some of us, it's not condemnation of the enemy. It really is conviction of the Holy Spirit. But the, the sad thing is that we don't have anybody to go to in the church and have ourselves be accountable and connected with them so that it does, it can, that closet can be open. 
And I hope that those of us here have the heart of a good shepherd and realize that when people open that closet to us, we don't have to gasp in shock or run for the gas mask, you know. Um, because of that verse that says, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. I realize I'm about this far, but by God's grace, from all the things that people come to me with, you know, from sexual immorality, from lying, from whatever else, you know. There was a, it really happened, this one lady was, it was a, a very proper southern church, I think it was in Georgia, and she was an older lady, and the pastor had spoken about inviting those who were living in a homosexual lifestyle into their church to show them the wrongness of that and to, to show them the truth and to show them how to find freedom from that. Well, she was really upset. I mean, this is probably one of those matriarch, you know, the queen bees in our churches, you know. Don't mess with the queen bees. Anyway, um, that she pretty much had been there forever and she went to the pastor and she said, you know, I, this bothers me. I don't think we should have those people in here. I mean, where are those people going to, where are we going to have those people sit? And he said very wisely, right next to the gossips. <laughs> a clear conscience is a prerequisite for ministry. There's at least three reasons. It helps us cl hear clearly from God. You know, I used to race into my meetings. Like if I had a two o'clock appointment to disciple someone. I, you know, get there like five minutes to two. Then I realize, you know what? I need about a half hour preparation for my own heart for each appointment. Now that really is hard to do because then it means you cut down on a lot of stuff. But what I was finding was that, I, you know, I was going in there with sort of this idea, okay, I'm going in there and solve their problems or I've got something to give them, which the Lord would give you something to give them, but I needed to take time before to say, Lord, um, I open all the doors in my life to you. Has, has any, have I offended you in any way? Which is my word for sin, because it's an offense to God. Um, Lord, is there anything that the enemy could use during this time to just stir up in me? Lord? And it's not introspection, it's Godspection. Letting him be the one that looks inside of me. So that when I got there, I could hear from the Lord. So remember that running prayer meeting? I see discipleship things and counseling is actually just a prayer meeting. Because while I'm talking with a prayer partner, like Mikhaila often functions as my prayer partner, um, I really encourage you, if you don't use a prayer partner, to really do that. And for one thing, it's easy. It's harder for three people to be deceived than for two, or for one. Um, but besides that, there's a lot of other reasons. Um, but they can attend to stuff that they're picking up on while you're talking with the person. But um, as I'd be sitting there and praying, Lord, what is the real problem here? Why can't she observe your forgiveness for this? Would you just bring it to her mind, or just give wisdom, give whatever, like this? All this that was going on. I couldn't hear clearly from him if there was this issue that I knew was there. And it was like, sometimes, doesn't the Lord do this? The very issue the person's wrestling with is something you're wrestling with. Has that ever happened? You know, like, Lord's just uncovering 
um, lack of trust in him. And he's saying, if prayer is a sign of dependence on God, then lack of prayer is a sign of independence from him. So he's convicting you about spending time in prayer so that, that you acknowledge your dependence on him. So here comes this person, this lady comes, she goes, you know, I just don't know why, but um, I just, and I just can't trust God. I can't, I, I, but I don't know how, and, and I just don't, and you're thinking, well, don't expect me to tell you because I'm wrestling with the same thing, you know. That's a good place to be in because then the Holy Spirit, God, can minister to both of us. But if I'm resisting and God has tapped me and said, you know, I weep over your prayerlessness. And so I come up with like, well, see, I'm really busy. I mean, you go to the ministry. I mean, we got stuff going on. You know, I mean, who's going to do it if I don't do it? I, I mean, I know it's a priority. But so if I'm making all these excuses to his conviction, then you come in there. It, it's like a, a, a mosquito, you know, around me, you know, so I can't concentrate and hear from God for this person because I got this thing buzzing around me. And then, horror of horrors, I think, I hope nobody knows that I had that problem. You know, it's like I got to guard my words so it doesn't sound like, so I must say, you know, I've heard that some people really wrestle with that, you know, <laughs> instead of that. And, you know, this is really, especially to talk a little bit later about sexual sin, this is really true in the area of sexual sin because when there's just taintedness in our own life, we may the person in front of us is addicted to pornography. We may not be addicted, but there's this incident and that incident that we're just kind of, well, that's in the past. And the Lord said, you know, that's that, that's fodder for the second point. The enemy's blackmail. It keeps us free from blackmail. During that session with that person, guess who is going to flare up all those thoughts? Well, here you're telling him that there is a possibility for victory. And look at your own life. You don't have victory. You know, what are you telling them for? You're just a hypocrite. You know what I mean? On and on and on and on. You're all kind of, well, well, you know, what if he finds out about your closets? You know, well, if you start pushing in on this, well, maybe you'll slip and you'll find out that it's, you know. I mean, all kind of blackmail, you know? I just find that for many people, if, if the enemy's blackmail were shut down through repentance and confession and receiving not only forgiveness but cleansing, it, it would, I mean, we would have just pulled the rug out from under about 80% of what the enemy tries to do to hinder our ministries. The last point, it, it helps us guard against deception. Um, sin brings a confusion, I know, in my life. I can't think as clearly because I've absorbed this as it's all right and it's not all right. And so it's really easy to go into another area. You know, there's the sadness of seeing in the last few years, seeing several brothers in Christ fall into moral failure and just, just being so sorrowful over that and asking ourselves, where were we for those brothers? Why weren't there people around them that were so connected and had a relationship with them that they couldn't be avenues for the Lord getting that person's attention before it got to that because it didn't start there. There were there were little turns in the roads that that later you look back and you say, Well, why didn't we say, you know, I just 
that doesn't seem right what you're saying. Let's let's pray together about that. Out of it, by the way, came uh, what we call ministry roundtable. It's a it's an inter ministry accountability slash connectedness group, um, and um, maybe you can ask us about that as well. Um, where there's small groups of ten people, leaders from different ministries or churches who are committed to develop a relationship with one another, out of which there can be connectedness, communication, and accountability. So, Otherwise, we, the deceiver, who has already deceived that person sitting there, um, is gunning for us. You know? And the, the only way to guard against that is to make sure when we go in there we have a clean slate. On the next page, as I said, a, the sign of a good teacher, which, you know, since I've got the pride issue, i got to affirm that I am, uh, is that they make mistakes in their notes. So here I am again. Let's, let's cross out the first two of those verses because they were repeated under Paul's example. Cross out First Timothy 24.5 and 23.1. What I'd like to do is to leave just run through these verses quickly. Uh, Well, actually, no. I'll let you do that at a later time. You've got the references that are there. Um, Let's go down to understanding the joy of cleansing. might be good to do with those verses under Paul's example what we did with the other. Practice that skill of engaging with Scripture and choosing truth in each one of those. Understanding the joy of cleansing. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience? If we stopped there, we'd, we'd say, cleanse your conscience from past sins, or cleanse your conscience from things that were wrong, which is what the verse is about. But look what he focuses on. Cleanse your conscience from dead works. Well, I'm sorry, I'm a Baptist, so I don't do dead works. That's the, you know, the, that's the other church religion that does the penance and all like that. But no, we're not into works, we're into grace. Oh, really? <laughs> I just see in my own life, my flesh is always yelling, works, 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 performance. My spirit is always saying, grace, grace, grace. Not excuse for sin, but grace that cleanses and brings forgiveness. I really wish we could have buckets of grace lined up here. So that beside your notebook, you came in with a buck. You grab your bucket. You know, I grew up on a farm and used to milk the cows and you had that steel bucket. You know, those of you that have grown up on farms, you know, and you carry the milk along. That those buckets were filled with grace that we could fill, find what we need. And we'd have leftover, probably half a bucket, so that when we go back to where we minister, we could pass it out. Hebrews 10.22 as drawn near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure words. First John 1 9. Let's listen to this as though we've never heard it before. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. 
from all unrighteousness. I was realizing, as I said before, I was sort of dividing it and accepting his forgiveness, but not his cleansing. I started to think about this. God's way is so different. Because what the, most of you probably have kids or grandkids. What if you said to your son, um, you know, don't play with the weed whacker. So next thing you know, you hear this whirring noise, and he's out there playing with the weed whacker. You're going out there, and you say, what are you doing? I told you don't play with the weed whacker. And he repents. He says, Dad, I'm really sorry I played with the weed whacker. And then he goes off in total freedom and joyfulness. Wouldn't you be worried? Say, well, maybe I don't think he was serious. Because he should have, like, moped around for a while. And, oh, I'm just terrible. And I, oh, isn't there something you could do to me to help me understand how severe this is? You know, I mean, what, it would be so strange if our, if our children would confess their sin and then be totally free. Just as though those sins had been thrown into the deepest sea. Well, no, but see, God won't think I'm real serious about it if I don't beat myself up for a while. I tell you, it's so dumb. He should have known better. Whatever. I got to show, I got to prove to God that I'm sorry. Isn't that different than how we as humans work? Because we would. We we question our kids like, you're acting too happy and too free and too cleansed from the guilt of this. You should have more guilt. Drag around guilt for a while. That second Corinthian verse down at the bottom there needs to be crossed out. That's another mistake. I really want to take our last time. David's example is on the next page. That's a powerful passage. But I want to get to clearing the conscience of sexual sin. It's on page K3. I've discovered that in my own life and in other people's lives, there's what I call true guilt, and then there's false guilt. I used to think that guilt was guilt, and if you had it, you had it. If you didn't, you were free from it. But with that conscience, remember, the conscience is a little wobbly. The spirit isn't. The spirit knows truth, truth is truth, it's united with the Holy Spirit. But the conscience, like we've seen, it could fluctuate, the enemy could affect it, our, our own uh, distortions about God and ourselves could affect it, our flesh, the world, all this kind of stuff, our Christian culture. Um, so we, we're, we've already seen that. Well, what if the guilt that we're experiencing isn't true guilt? Well, how do I know if it is or it isn't? Um, we talked a little bit about it yesterday, so we're going to review that, but the main point is just to realize sometimes when people come to us and they're just burdened, oh, you know, I, I remember one lady, she had been uh, as really severely abused as a kid and her family was involved in demonic stuff and all the horrors of that And because the same being that planned the Holocaust in Germany is the same being that plans ritual abuse in many families. Uh, they're inhumane. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking about, see, true guilt, it's like we're guilty of sin. And if Christ really is our substitute and he paid the penalty, you know that old song that he, it says he, he took our guilt, our sin, our guilt, our shame on the cross. Um, I haven't found, I found a solution for true guilt. And it's that kid with the weed whacker kind of a thing. True guilt. He can go away just totally free. And he might just say, well, then, you know, now he may manipulate, that's not good. But what I'm trying to use the illustration is that there's a solution for my guilt. That's confession and forgiveness and cleansing. The false guilt, like you're saying, is where you keep going over it and over it and think, well, they think, well, I'm not Catholic, so I don't do penance, but we do, you know, and beat yourself up and all, oh, and, yeah, and confess and confess and confess. Um, reconfession, I don't think, I don't see that anywhere in there. You know, I, that thing of legalism we're going to talk about in just a minute. Uh, Rich Miller um, is with Freedom in Christ, and he's written a book. I think some of you have read it because I know you mentioned it to me. Freedom from the Bondage of Legalism. Rich Miller is his name. It's really a good book because um, the, the Galatians, well, first the Pharisees were the legalists, but then the Galatians were tempted to be the legalists and Paul. That's why Paul says, you started out okay, and then your principles and your rules became your God instead of me. But let's look up at this. Escaping the nagging of the accuser of the brethren. Terrifying the difference between true guilt and false guilt. We said this yesterday, but let's just go over it quickly. Can we find another? Well, let me give you the list while she's looking. It should be, it should be slide number well, that might be where we, we, we have these missing PowerPoint slides. So let me give them to you. True guilt. Under that column, results from specific sins. Results from specific sins. False guilt is often a vague negative feeling with no specifics. Is often a vague negative feeling with no specifics. True guilt, like I said, results from specific sins. False guilt is often a vague, negative feeling with no specifics. True guilt can be cleared up by genuine repentance. So that's the guy you were talking about. He repented. He can ask his Abba Father to take him for an ice cream cone ten seconds later. Because it's taken care of. Yeah, but that just doesn't sound right, you know. Our humanness goes, yeah, but... It's in there, look, it's in there, like prego spaghetti sauce. It's in the word, you know. Can be cleared up by genuine repentance. False guilt carries the hopelessness of no way out. Carries the hopelessness of no way out. In that situation that he mentioned, I found sometimes the problem is pride has made it so they can't forgive themselves. Pride has made it so they can't forgive themselves. Because I know when I say, 
I can't forgive myself. There's lots of distortions about God, and it's not always pride, but most of the time for me, it's like, I can't believe that I did that. I mean, I should be a better Christian that, right? I mean, I just... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, the pride is built on a foundation, and the foundation is deception, a distortion about God himself. Uh, true guilt comes when God readily lets us know what we did wrong. True guilt comes when God readily lets us know what we did wrong. He doesn't say, well, guess. You know, he comes in with a sincere heart. And he said, well, yeah, there is something wrong, but you have to figure it out. Do you know that how your parents raised you really impact you on this? Because training a child is showing them how to do it and then gradually becoming the coach on the sidelines. It's not, okay, do this without training them so that you give them a responsibility that's too much for them. Even their minds as a little, they're not, they don't know how to do it. So they've been trained throughout their life, if they grew up in that family, in learning, it's all up to me, i got to figure this out. So that they, when they come to these things, okay, I've got guilt, and I've got got to figure this, I've got to figure this, it's all up to me. So that is a real impactful thing in the the way that we've been raised in the sense of were we trained to take responsibility, or were we just given responsibility that was too much for us, and we ended up accomplishing it because we just had to scurry and figure it all out. It's kind of like without Michaela, me trying to figure out this computer stuff. <laughs> you need to train me so I'll know it. Um, true, guilt, true, true guilt comes when God really lets us know what we did wrong. False guilt, God does not identify the sin which has, quote, caused a feeling of guilt. In false guilt, God does not, we believe, God does not identify the sin which has, quote-unquote, caused the feeling of guilt. In other words, it's like, well, yeah, you're guilty, and uh, you're just going to have to kind of be guilty and drag this around. I mean, do the, the shame that comes. I mean, just, it, it's sort of this vague, they all fit together, in other words. You know, when the, that person is there sitting there, I find it real helpful instead of saying, well, you know, I went to this class and we're talking about true guilt and false guilt and I think you're falling into false guilt here, so let's straighten up on this. Instead of doing that, saying, you know, would you be willing to ask God, is this true guilt or false guilt? Is this from you, Lord? Or this guy says I'm forgiven. He's reminding me of that. Why can't I believe your forgiveness? Escaping the enemy's snare of false guilt. How come he can get at us so easily? What, are there open doors or things that we need to attend to? Let's fill in the blanks here. Again, we don't have the PowerPoint. Deal with any known sin. That's kind of basic. Deal with any known sin. And remember, in your own life and people that you're ministering to, if you've been shooting at that sin for 20 years, and it's still you still stumble with it, Maybe going to the Lord and saying, am I shooting at the wrong thing? Is this only a symptom of something? Is this only a mosquito I'm trying to get away? What is the core issue here, Lord? 
You know, like Neil Anderson says, you can either swap flies all day or take out the bag of garbage. And when people come to us, they're coming with their flies buzzing around. That's what's concerning them. And the Lord wants to take out the garbage in their life so that the flies will go when the garbage goes. Commit to his search light. Commit to his search light. Remember Paul says, I don't even evaluate my own self. I let the Lord do that. Commit to his search light. Next page, ask the Lord to give you truth from the word. Ask the Lord to give you truth from the word to combat the fog of guilty feelings. Ask the Lord to give you truth from the word to combat the fog of guilty feelings. Makayla, could you find Jim Gaskell and ask him if he has those copies made? Ask the Lord to give you truth from the word to combat the fog of guilty feelings. I taught at Cedarville University in Ohio, and it was a 45-minute drive, and my supervisor was a very powerful, uh, very, he was a gifted musician. I, I taught in, in music there. And he, and he was, you know, very gun-ho, and, and uh, don't pass him out yet, because people start reading them. I've been in classes long enough to know that. Um, and I used to feel so intimidated by him. And the Lord said, you know what that is? And I said, what? And he said, fear of man. And I said, uh, well, all right, Lord, yes, that is. I agreed with him. And said, yeah, I don't know how to change that, Lord. Would you give me ammunition from your word that I could see that broken down? And he did. He gave me three verses. And so for that 45 minutes, I would affirm that. One of them was, fear of man brings a snare. So I'd say that, and then I'd say, I refuse the fear of man. I refuse to sneer at the enemy wants it. Another one was not that we're adequate in ourselves as considering anything that's coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from him. Lord, I affirm I'm adequate in you. And then there was another verse. It took me six months of 45-minute drive, and that, that stronghold of fear of man in that situation was totally gone. And it never returned. I could go there. His abilities... My perceived inabilities, his powerful personality, whatever. I wasn't, I wasn't intimidated by him. Now that I'm not talking about, you know, getting into all crazy, you know, power struggle, but what I'm saying is, when the Lord identified it as being afraid of man, um, and I agreed with it, he gave me ammunition from his word specifically to deal with that. Um, and the last one is deal, let's see, deal with any shame in your life. You want to give me one of those, Michaela, and then maybe give a bunch to the people on the end of the rows, and if you can pass these on. Um, it's called, uh, it's from a book, Release from Shame, by Dr. Sandra Wilson, published by University. And I think if one thing could really bring a great, great measure of freedom to us in our churches is if we realize we don't need to carry shame. Um, this particular thing has to do with 
shame-based versus grace-based church families. So, um, would you like to help Michaela maybe by putting them over to this side, grabbing a pile, so we can make sure we have time for a coffee break here. Got it, got it. Um, being able to go to the Lord and say, Lord, is legalism in, in my search to be, in my search to be true to your word and to avoid, uh, avoid the wishy-washiness of people who don't use your word as truth, as absolutes. Have I absorbed legalism? Lord, what is legalism? And have I become like a Galatian? As the rest of you are receiving this, listen while I read. Uh, on a shame-based church family, it's rooted in shame-based religionism, that is, keeping man-made rules to be right. Now, are there things that God wants us to do? Yeah. But they themselves may become, the rules may become the God, which is what legalism is, part of legalism is. God is presented as a demanding Pharisee shepherd who drives his sheep. God's acceptance is earned by performing and pleasing with our works and law-keeping. See, when you, later on, you might want to take this, say, Lord, is that, is this ashes and soot of that anywhere in my life? Maybe I've not jumped right into it, but there's just a little bit of soot, you know? I am expected to be totally, or almost, Transform the moment I trust Christ. I call this the baby with the briefcase. I'm a new Christian and I'm handed the briefcase and supposed to be able to go to work right there. Since I should be totally transformed, perfect or perfect, I am a different and less than Christian because I'm not perfect. Members with obvious problems are an embarrassment to the church since the best Christians, ours, have no serious problems. No provisions have been made to help. Small group Bible studies are dangerous places because someone might get close enough to see behind my mask of perfectionism and know I have problems. <clears throat> anyway, moving on. Emphasis is on looking religious by wearing the right clothes and carrying the right translation of the Bible. Emphasis is on revealing and rebuking sinners. Attendance at church activities is used as the main indicator of a person's true spirituality. That's the, the first church of the legalists. Now, over here at Grace Chapel, here's what goes on. Rooted in grace-based relationship. Not the wishy-washy stuff. We're not talking about that. We're talking about people that are true to the word. Rooted in grace-based relationship. That is trusting in Christ's dress to be right. God is presented as an understanding father shepherd who leads his sheep. He leads him in righteousness. He doesn't excuse sin, but he doesn't drive his sheep. God's acceptance is a gift of his grace received by trusting Christ's perfect work of fulfilling the law and dying to pay my sin debt. I'm expected to keep on being transformed by having my mind renewed as long as I live. Since I'm in a lifelong process of being transformed to be like Jesus, my imperfections don't surprise either me or God. Members with obvious problems are expected since the past and present effects of sin in Christians' lives can cause serious problems. There are programs in place to provide appropriate health, help, and health. Small group Bible studies are safe places to practice being maskless and real with others who do the same. It's great to go where I don't have to hide my problems. We're not talking about roaming the rubble here. 
Remember we said Nehemiah was removing the rubble and building the wall. And I've seen 30 years ago when I needed help from the church, they just said, well, forget to build the wall. And I told you the disaster of that because of the rubble, because of the lies. But I've seen a swing in the last 10 years. There's some support groups in churches that do what I call Rome the rubble. They say, well, let's look at your pile. Oh, my pile's bigger than your pile. Boy, I had a bad time, you know. Well, what's the sense of that? Just remove it. Um, so I'm not suggesting that that the that small groups become a place where everybody comes and begins to just roam the rubble and talk about the rubble. It's kind of like, um, you know, these when you have a tornado down in Florida and it completely destroys the the house and there's a reporter standing there with a microphone on a slab with this family that's huddled together. They've just lost everything. And then the, the very smart question that the that the reporter asked is, well, how does it feel to have lost everything, you know? Or he might say, well, what what was the velocity of that wind that destroyed your house? Or was it northeast wind or was it north-northeast wind? Could you give me specifics on it? Well, that's stupid because you're left with the devastation. The issue is not puddling around and roaming the rubble without ever getting it removed. Emphasis on developing a deeper relationship of love and trusting obedience with the Lord Jesus Christ. Emphasis is on restoring repentant sinners. Acknowledgement that true spirituality is reflected in total lifestyle and known only to God. Um, this is kind. Of, I haven't read the book. I was in a, a, a leaders meeting two days ago, and somebody handed this to me. But they said there's also having to do with shame-based versus grace-based families. Um, so that might be something good to look into. Um, I really want to hit one topic that's at the very bottom of your thing because I guess I want to talk about it because nobody else does. <laughs> and I've seen it over and over again. By the way, after K4, there's K5 and all that. There's some really good stuff that came from Jeff Pacone, Reverend Jeff Pacone, who used to teach this part of the course about clearing your conscience. And I would encourage you to take time to go through those or to use them to lead others through. But I want to be just for a minute at the bottom of K4, sexual sin and prior sexual abuse. Sexual sin and prior sexual abuse. I know that some of you um, are pastors here, at least I assume. Um, so maybe you can check me on this. I'm being serious about this. Um, to see if I'm on track with this theologically, because if it's true, then it will change so many things in our lives and the lives of those that we minister to. And that's the fact that this issue of shame, a Christian should never carry shame. Why do I say that? Well, guilt, you know, for sin, and there's true guilt that comes when we sin. But what is shame? Well, I looked at that passage that says about Christ on the cross, and it says he despised the shame. And I used to think it meant one of two things. 
In the Old Testament, it says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So the shame of being hung, crucified, was what he despised. And also, probably, he, he was naked on the cross. So the shame of that. But I looked at that word despised, and it's the same word in the original that Esau despised his birthright. That when he came in from hunting, and of all things, I don't know why, where his taste buds were, but he wanted lentil soup. Well, anyway, um, he was willing to trade the precious inheritance for a bowl of soup because he despised his birthright. So I looked up the meaning of that word, and it, it seems to me he didn't consider it significant. He, in other words, it was it had no power. It had no importance for him. Could it be that when it says, we know that on the cross Christ carried our sin, he carried the guilt of our sin. He traded it for his righteousness. In his despising of the shame, was he also carrying the shame that is inherent in sin? There's a shamefulness about sin. Did he carry that on his cross? In other words, did he free us from shame? I really think so. Because... What is the effect of shame? I did a, we did a Bible study on shame. What does the Bible say about shame and all this? The effect of shame is distance from someone. If you're ashamed, you know, you don't go near that person. If you're, there's shame in your life, many people don't go near God. But there's no cure for shame. Now that doesn't seem right. With sin, there's confession and forgiveness. But I, myself included, for years and decades, carried shame, not only for what my choices were, but even what was done to me. And I find a lot of ladies I minister to who are sexually abused carried the shame that should have been on the person who did it. So you might want to look in your life or help people that you minister to saying, Lord, where are the, what's still prickly? What do I carry shame about? And ask him, do you want me to carry that? Is it true that on the cross your work was so complete that you even bore the shame of my sin so that I don't need to carry it? Am I being tricked into thinking that I need to drag this around. Maybe that's part of the reason the guy comes and confesses and confesses. Because this, this blanket of shame is on their life. Wouldn't it be cool if those buckets of grace that we lined up there, you know, if we each got one, and if the only thing it did was to free us from shame, so that when we went back to where we minister, we're shameless. See, that's what the kid with the weed whacker is. He's shameless. He doesn't go, oh my goodness, I can't believe I did that, Lord, you know, or he goes to the Father and says, I just, you know, I just feel horrible that I did that. I feel so horrible. I don't think I can go to school tomorrow, you know, or whatever. I mean, open and open, you know, we just think that that's, that's odd if he would just be free of shame. Uh huh.
Uh-huh. Wow. Say that again, would you? Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's sort of those two charts, true guilt and false guilt, right? There's shame over with all this false guilt back there. It might be worth praying about later for your own life as well as those you minister to. But I want to look at that last sentence. Sexual sin and prior sexual abuse. I want to mention this because I know lots of Christians who beat themselves up thinking, why am I so susceptible to this sexual sin? I, I, I ask forgiveness and I'm right back in it. I ask forgiveness and I'm right back in it. Remember we said one of the things might be we're shooting at the wrong thing. That's a symptom. The addiction to pornography is a symptom of this. Now we're not talking about excusing sin. That's not even what we're doing here. We're talking about getting to the place of sin. Believing lies is sin. So we may be believing lies that make us susceptible to that sexual sin. But also, people that have been sexually abused, there is a unique opening and vulnerability from the enemy to work in sexual areas of their life. And again, it's not as cute to say, well, you know, I was sexually abused as a kid, so, you know, we're not talking about that at all. I've never, people who've been sexually abused and are stuck in sexual sins, I've never heard them with that casualness. They grieve over, oh, why can't I get past this? Why I'm supposed to be leading, and, and if anybody knew this, you know, the shame, the enemy uses shame to hide. God is a God of light. We bring it out to him from underneath the blanket of shame. And he, he clears it, he brings forgiveness, he clears it up. But let's add a few things here under this, just a couple of points. What are the results of sexual abuse in the past that might make us vulnerable to sexual sins or those that we minister to? The results of sexual abuse in the past. Number one is immaturity in sexual areas. (coughs) Immaturity in sexual areas. The maturation process, physically, mentally, emotionally, in sexual areas that God intended to grow us into, have been stopped. And often at the point of the time of sexual abuse, whatever age the person is, that's kind of what interrupted that normal maturing process. That's why even in take you know, in junior high the infatuation stuff, you know. And you know, everybody's got uh, well I guess nowadays it might be fifth grade, I don't know. But you know, so and so likes so and so and he doesn't like me, you know, and here and there and you know, all this other stuff. Actually what's happening for anybody, whether they're Christian or not, is their brain is developing, they're learning how to relate to people of the opposite sex. Now, in the Christian context, in their worldview, that's totally different, and yet we are learning how to relate, how to appropriately relate in the Christian context to someone of the opposite sex. Well, if there's sexual abuse right then, down the road, 20 years, say say that it's a it's a woman, she finds herself, like, infatuated with everybody. Infatuated with the pastor. Infatuated with the guest speaker. Infatuated. Well, why is that? Well, the sexual abuse has caused an immaturity in that area that makes her more susceptible to having sinful thoughts and 
and having inappropriate sexual um, passion and stuff. Well, what's the solution of that? God is very good at helping people do what I call grow up backwards. And I had to find that in many places in my life. They come to you and they're caught in the infatuations. And when they pray and say, Lord, where is the root of this? Where, where did you, I'm willing to go anywhere you want to take me on this. And they come to my and say, well, you know, I remember that situation when I was in junior high. Blah, blah, blah. They tell you about it and you say, would you be willing to ask the Lord what he wants you to know? What truth he wants to bring to that? And they pray that and they realize, you know, it may be the issue of, I believe that because that happened, I will never be clean again my whole life. I'm ruined for life. That's the point of sin, believing that lie. And that sin has had the effect of infatuations and lust and everything else going on here. And then saying, Lord, would you make up for the years the locusts have eaten in my life? Would you mature me in that area? Teach me how to relate to people of the opposite sex. Teach me how to relate to my husband if they're married. Another effect of sexual abuse in the past is unwanted spiritual union. Unwanted spiritual union. The more I look at things, the more I see that the spirit world is very legal. There must be a lot of lawyers. Never mind, I'm not making the connection. But in, in the spiritual realm, in the demonic realm, or in God's realm, there's legal, there's covenants. He's made a new covenant with us. Um, those of you that have read my book know that there was a dramatic encounter with God. One of the good things that came out of my life was an incredible revelation of God. And I don't mean visions and stuff like this. But when I was 11, I was, I tell about it in the book, I was walking up on the ridge of the roof of my house because I was going to jump off and commit suicide. The abuse and the torment and everything had gotten so severe. At least I could be in control of when I died. So I was walking there, and it was just as though from in my spirit, the same similar encounter that Elijah had when he was in the cave. Because it was as though God was saying, as I was walking to the edge, um, what are you doing here? Well, I had just been through a, a satanic ritual where I had been reminded that I belonged to the darkness, that they had made covenants for me through my grandparents. And so I said to the Lord, well, you know, I belong to them. They've made a covenant for me. And there on the roof at 11, this incredible revelation of the book of Hebrews, the truth that are in there, he said so clearly to me, that was true. You did belong to them. They did make a covenant for you, for you. But I made a new covenant. And now you belong to me. You know, that kind of depth of revelation of the truth that can come, even in a life where there's been so much damage in the sexual area even, that God can bring truth in this powerful way when I'm ministering to people, if I get out of the way and let them connect with him, that's that discipleship model again, his hand in their hand, and facilitating revelation. I don't know what happened in junior high. I don't know what they need to know. I can tell them, well, you know, it wasn't your fault, and you resisted, and blah, 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 and you don't need to bear the shame. But if I say to them, why don't you go to God and ask him, what does he think about that night? The truth they get from him. Stay, I mean, they walk away 
totally freed from that and forever freed. It, he, anyway, but this unwanted sexual union, that the legality of the spirit realm, the covenants and different things, when they're sexual union, they become one flesh, it says. So whether they're married or not, those I know that they've spoken about it earlier in the week. If not, they'll be speaking about it in soul ties when they talk later uh, this week. But needing to break those those legal unions for the people that, that they have had sexual relationships with. And just simply having to say, in the name of Jesus Christ, I break any union that that sexual connection with that person brought to my spirit, brought to my mind, brought to my body, whatever. But if that's not done, and a lot of people don't attend to that when they show up in your office or if you experience it yourself, that person will be more susceptible to the enemies. That's a weak area in the wall, in the sexual area, because those are sort of connections all around that need to be broken. And again, it's not an excuse in saying, well, the reason that I'm addicted to pornography was I had all this sexual stuff going on. No, but it's just having the Lord show what is the real problem, what needs to be confessed to sin, what needs to be forgiven and received cleansing for. So besides immaturity in sexual areas that make us more vulnerable, those of us that have experienced sexual abuse, unwanted sexual union, the last point is mental, spiritual, emotional, and physical confusion. The result of sexual abuse, mental, spiritual, emotional, and physical confusion. The word for incest in Hebrew, I don't speak Hebrew, but I, I don't know Hebrew, but I was told this by someone who did. In the Old Testament, the word for incest is same root, same root word as confusion. No matter how tiny that little one is, something within them registers this isn't right. And it sets up a confusion about sexual things, especially when there's incest. Because the people who are supposed to protect you, who are supposed to be your covering, who are supposed to be your authority, are abusing you. And more than likely, they're telling you, God told me to do this. Or they're using scripture even in their wickedness. Or they're saying, it's your fault that I did this, you enticed me. I mean, the, the impact of all sexual abuse is horrific, but especially incest. I just want to close by just mentioning really quickly um, one thing, and that's people that come to you and when they, they, they say, Lord, I'm willing to go anywhere you want me to go or know anything you want, and they suddenly remember a sexual abuse encounter, and they themselves say, well, did that really happen? I don't even, I mean, am I like just making this up or something? If they say that, what you can do is take them to the Lord and say, well, let's, let's put it in the Lord's hands to decide whether this is really true or not, that this happened. I've been ministering for about 30 years and discipling people, and I have never found someone who came with a false memory. And just in, in closing, as a, in the false, people say, well, isn't there that false memory syndrome thing? You know, that, that you like, the enemy deceives you into remembering these sexual encounters or abuse or something. Most people think that, well, that's probably either very godly people that are guarding against deception 
that started that there's this false memory foundation even. Or it's like, you know, people in the nose, counselors or something. Well, it was started by a guy that at the time was the leading purveyor of internet pornography, child pornography. He and his wife had a business of selling pornography. And his daughter, who's grown, is an engineer at the University of Michigan. And she began to expose the incest that was going on in her life. And so they had to do something. So they've gathered around them many people, likewise, who have um, been involved in abusing their children. And they've united and said, and really put forward this, this would be false memory. And I found I need to be cautious against deception. But the people that come to me aren't the ones that are bragging about the sexual abuse in their past. They're full of shame about it. They're hiding. They, they can't believe that it's true. Um, as I said, there may be people who are, I know the enemy well enough to know that he could derail a lot of people into believing that they're being deceived by having someone come with a false memory. And then it's proven later they're not. And the destruction that brings on the family is horrible. So he may do that. But again, if the Lord is the one who confirms to us in our spirit, confirms to the person we're discipling, no, this really did happen. We can trust that he will guard us from deception, especially if we have all those safeguards in place we were talking about. But I just wanted to mention that because often you hear, you know, well, if this is a false memory, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of that going around. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's a lot of wicked sexual things going around. Why don't we close in prayer? Sorry I dipped into your coffee break. Lord Jesus, what would we do if we didn't have you? Father, I pray for myself and all of us involved in discipleship and counseling. Lord, I ask that the things that you're showing us during this week wouldn't stay in our head, but would be in our heart. Help us to mix your word with faith. Help us, Father, to get free in our own lives, in places where we've just had to hide it because we're supposed to be all together. We're supposed to be ministers. And yet, we've got these things there. We openly bring them to you, Lord. We're not ashamed to bring them to you. We are so glad that you delight in us. We're so glad that you call us your special treasure. So we leave here smiling, knowing that your grace is just overflowing in our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.